really hoping for sweaty girl sneakers. Welcome listeners to episode three of Onward. I'm Rod. And I'm Elizabeth. And this is a podcast from the Advancement Office of the Pike School. Okay, Elizabeth, we're officially halfway through season two. That's right, Rod. Two episodes down, two to go. In the first episode, we focused on how Pike students are engaging with our motto, non sibi solum, not for oneself alone. Then in episode two, we heard from two Pike teachers about how they were sharing their talents and expertise with peers at other independent schools. Exactly. And both were really fascinating episodes. So listeners, if you haven't listened yet, you don't know what you're missing. Literally. All right, Elizabeth. But this is the episode that I know you've been waiting for, isn't it? It is, Rod. I am so excited because this is the episode where we focus on our fantastic alumni. Yes, we're thrilled to be featuring them in this episode. It's long overdue. Yes, and their stories are so great. They are. First, we'll hear from two alums currently at the Brooks School who are working on raising awareness of and funds for COVID vaccinations in Armenia. Oh, that's so cool. And then I had a great conversation with Margot Lindauer, class, Pike class of 95, who talks about all the efforts she and her law students are making to help victims of domestic violence. Along the way, we're going to be hearing about how the foundations of the skills, awareness, and passion they're using to help others today were built right here at Pike. Yes. So grab a snack. Put on your favorite podcast pants. Your favorite podcast pants and find a comfy seat and get ready to hear about Pike alums who are taking the world by storm. So Elizabeth, do you have a favorite pair of podcast pants? I don't even know what that is, Ron. Mm-hmm. Well, speaking of podcasts, we're so glad you dear listeners are here. Yes, because you are in for a real treat. That's right. Our first story focuses on some young alums from the class of 2019, Eric Bow and James Wodarski. Yes, they started a not-for-profit organization called All Together Armenia, which is raising both awareness and money in support of expanding access to COVID vaccinations in Armenia. Theirs is a great story. And you know what? It kind of started right here at Pike. It sure did. They both participated in Junior Board, which is a phenomenal program that's been run here at Pike for several years by two dedicated parents, Jeannie Sullivan and Sarah Parker. Students who participate in Junior Board learn all about how not-for-profits work, and then they explore a local not-for-profit and its impact on the community. After that, the students create a presentation and appeal to a panel of judges about why the not-for-profit organization they visited is so deserving. The winning presentation earns that not-for-profit a generous and very real donation from the junior board program. It's a really fantastic experience. And it clearly has an impact because both Eric and James credit it for spurring their initial awareness of and interest in not-for-profits. How sweet is that? I love it. 
Definitely. So let's learn more about how James and Eric are carrying on what they learned at Pike into this new project. So welcome. I'd love uh, for both of you to introduce yourselves. Um, start with maybe uh, obviously your name, um, what grade you're in, where you're going to school, and um, perhaps like when you graduated from Pike. Yeah, I, I can start. Um, I'm Eric. I'm Right now I'm a junior at the Brooks School and I graduated from Pike in 2020 because I did Pike 9, but I'm part of the class of 2019. Great. Uh, I'm James. I'm also a junior at Brooks and I graduated Pike in 2019. Um, and I know you're both involved in this project um, called Altogether Armenia. And I'm just curious if you could kind of Describe the project and, and walk us through um, what the, the purpose is and what the goals are. Yeah, basically, it's at its core, it's a COVID 19 uh, relief not nonprofit. Um, its goals are, I would say, twofold. The first is to be able to educate those in Armenia about the vaccine because um, there's a decent amount of vaccine hesitancy there, and to be able to help boost vaccine numbers. Um, and on top of that, provide either like monetary or material support to the com com communities that have been most heavily affected by the pandemic there. Mm -hmm. uh, so yeah, I would say those are our goals. Great. Uh, and how did you both get involved um, with this project? Mm -hmm. um, I, this all kind of spun out of a school project that we did starting last year. Um, towards the end of our year in AP World, we had a project in class where it was like a model UN thing where we'd each pick a country and we had a model UN discussion about COVID vaccine distribution. Um, and after that, we had a, something called an action project where we were assigned to do something that would help create change in the world. Um, and I kind of just took that like and started from there and I wanted to do some sort of COVID relief nonprofit and speaking with um, my teacher and those around me, I, I realized that Armenia was a, a place where I could have a lot of impact. Um, and then James can talk about how you got involved. Too. Yeah, so I was also in Eric's AP world class and my um, project that was made to help um, like, like sort of like model UN, like help uh, the world is sort of I sort of did, um, I started a social media page dedicated to informing people all around the world uh, about COVID-19 and its vaccines, because this was in like an early state of COVID. Yeah. So um, because of this, I was able to learn the effective means, like the effective means to educate people on how to uh, get the vaccine, the benefits of it. And then also, uh, so when I heard Eric was doing his on was primarily focusing on Armenia, I thought it would be really cool for me to like help him out with the things that I had learned about how to um, like spread knowledge about co like COVID vaccines and COVID relief um, and just help any way I can. That's great. And so does that mean you have different, I guess, does that mean you have different roles in, in this um, project or you guys share, share responsibilities or how, how does it work? Um, yeah, basically it, it kind of grew to a point where I realized that James and I wouldn't 
like realistically be able to do the whole thing by ourselves. Um, so because of this, I founded the nonprofit club at Brooks. Um, so we have a group, a great group of around, like, I would say like 20 to 25 students there that are also helping us work on this project. Um, so we have like branding elements, like t-shirts, uh, stickers and flyers that we're making for our upcoming event. And things like this are all like done by volunteers from our nonprofit club at school. Um, so I, I'm in more of a managing position, uh, taking care of like a lot of the logistical and planning things when it comes to the event. Um, and yeah, that's kind of my role. And then James is like really focused on the social media stuff. He's doing a great job. And then also we have like a multitude of um, like we, when we had our uh, like fair for so that we have a club fair at Brooks. And when we talked about we were how we were going to start a nonprofit club. Uh, altogether our mania was just like one of like the like multitude of different like ways we wanted to like help like different nonprofits in general and then um also on top of that uh eric's like eric's done a really good job managing everything i'm more like based on like social media but also like eric and i are like very focused on finding ways where, that we can get money through brooks and then also putting that money towards a fundraiser and figuring out like fun things to do as a fundraiser so that we can get like more publicity at Brooks. So. I understand you've been working with um, a doctor at Mass General. How did, yeah. how did that come about and, and what's that uh, relationship or what's that connection been like? Yeah. So my, when I started this, I was um, just kind of working about myself and I kind of chatted with my dad about it. Um, and he works at Mass General. So he has a lot of friends there and he brought it up. He knows like a few Armenian physicians there. So he kind of just brought it up with them. And one of them was really interested in uh, chatting with me about it. So we kind of just like one night we just had a phone call and we were just talking about the project and like what, I, why I was doing it and like what I was doing it for. Um, and he got pretty excited about it. Um, so he's, he's helping me like contact, um, much of the Armenian community within Massachusetts, uh, as well as like gather information about the situation in Armenia so we can best help. Why is it important to you to do this, um, you know, to give your time um, and, and to apply your talents in this way? And, and so why, why does it matter? Uh, I can answer that. So um, basically when I was in uh, sixth grade at Brooks, uh, there was a non or sixth grade at Pike. There was a um, nonprofit uh, like morning activity that was introduced to us. Um, I think it was like at a club where we would meet in the morning and we would discuss different nonprofits that needed help in the area. And then um, we were then separated into groups where we could um, visit local nonprofits and we were each assigned a nonprofit and we got to go visit it and whoever raised the most money, uh, whoever uh, presented their nonprofit the best would raise money for um, their cause. And what was so cool about this was there's so many different nonprofits in the area that like we don't even realize um, need our help and time and attention. So for me, this was kind of like an eye-opening process where I could see um, different, um, I could see different parts of the community that needed our help. And it was just a really cool experience. I got to see, um, I got to see an art school in Lynn 
that's like dedicated to keeping pe- kids off the streets. And it was a really fun experience. And even though I don't think my group won that year, it was, it, it's, it's kind of sparked something inside of me where I kind of felt like it's, there's more fulfillment in giving back than pleasing oneself. So um, yeah, that's how it started for me. Yeah. yeah. I, I kind of have a similar story. I actually did that program too while I was at Pike. Um, and I had a great experience uh, because I, I really got to work with a nonprofit and we were like going to their afternoon programs. Uh, this is CC Puente in Lawrence. Um, and we saw like a lot of what they were doing and how they would run it. And I think what impacted me the most was seeing the, the impact that they have and like the stories that came out of that program. Um, and like over the pandemic, I, I have like a lot of time to myself. So I was doing some, some reflecting and I thought like, uh, being in the position that I'm in, I, I feel like I, I take a lot of things for granted. Um, so some, sometimes, so I just feel like, um, you know, I, I just feel like I should do something to give back to some community that was in need, whether it was in like locally or internationally, just like something that would be able to help people out. Are there things you've learned um, by doing it? Are there understandings about um, yourselves or about your community that have changed um, in any way while, while working on this project? I think for me, really, the one thing that I, I think there's definitely more than one thing that I learned, but um, one of the major challenges going into doing a project like this is I don't think I realized at the start, like the, the amount of like tasks that I would, that I would need to be dealing with, um, like managing a team of like, I think we have right now around like 10 to 15 people working on this is really, it's, it's really time consuming um chasing people around and making sure everything's getting done so we can be as successful as possible when it comes down to the fundraiser um and just just working with working with the team and like making this thing happen has been has the whole thing's been a learning experience i would say working as a team has been like a really um obviously taking leadership it can be tough at times but i think our group has done a really good job with uh, accepting designated roles and like just working really well. Um, even though it's a tough experience, I think me and Eric both realized that um, it's going to be like very fulfilling and very much worth it once we do and eventually get this fundraiser and uh, like help out um, people in Armenia. So I think it's going to be um, like very much worth it. Even though it's a lot of time put in, it's it's very much like something that I wouldn't like not want to be doing. And, um, and one thing that yeah. I do want to add, sorry, sure. um, is that I, I feel like although the goal is to benefit those in our Armenia and help them um, with dealing with the pandemic, I feel like an effect that isn't really intended, but is one that we have is like being able to work with the community at Brooks too. Mm-hmm. Um, because this hasn't just been about um, creating a fundraiser for, for Armenia, but has also been about like connecting the community tighter at Brooks and building new connections within the students there. Um, I, I know our club has like 
has brought together people that uh, in different grades, different classes that usually probably wouldn't even have uh, spoke, spoke with each other. Um, and now they're like working on a team together. So that's been, that's been something that I've enjoyed a lot is being able to create those connections with the club too. That's fantastic. Yeah. Um, and do you, do you both see yourselves continuing like after, after, after Brooks um, in your sort of adult lives, do you, you see yourselves continuing to, to, to either work with this not-for-profit that you've started or to continue to do this kind of work? Um, yeah, I think that after Brooks, nothing's really changed. Um, I think like subconsciously, it's been sort of ingrained in my brain over the years, um, especially like tiny things at Pike, um, even like the giving back to Lazarus house, like right before Thanksgiving, like a lot of that stuff we don't realize um, we're doing it at Pike because it's just something that's ingrained into us that um, we're helping a community. And it's not something that people look at as like, say, oh, it's such a burden. But I remember when we were in eighth grade and we were loading the truck to go to Lazarus house with all the food, like it was just something that we did. And it was something that we felt great after we did it. And so I don't think after uh, high school, after graduating high school, anything's going to change. I think it's just some a part of our lives now. And I think it's been a really fun experience. Um, in, in my mind, I feel like the effects of COVID as the years go on will be less and less in our lives. Um, and this nonprofit, I feel like maybe in like five or 10 years won't be able to have the, the impact that it has right now. Um, but that isn't to say that I, that's the end of like my work and nonprofits and stuff. I definitely like have really enjoyed um, the whole process of doing this. Um, and it's something I definitely will continue doing in the future. Uh, just th it doesn't really matter to me that much the cause that I'm supporting. I just feel like as long as I'm giving back to the community that has given so much to me that that's like really meaningful to me. So, yeah. Great, thank you. Um, and so you, you've both mentioned um, uh, a, a fundraiser that's coming up for All Together Armenia. And I'm curious if you could talk a little bit about that and sort of, um, I gather that's the next step for, um, for All Together Armenia, but then sort of like what, what's after that or, or what, how, does it, how does it unfold after the fundraiser? Um, yeah, I've, I have some ideas for what we would be doing after the fundraiser. Um, working with the physician from Mass General, I brought this idea to him and he thought it was really great. Um, so this is probably what we'd be doing next um, is part of the issue with vaccine hesitancy within the country from news reports and from what I've heard from people in, in Armenia is that a lot of physicians or just people in general are under educated about the side effects and the benefits of the vaccine. Um, so a lot of people are really hesitant to take it because they don't know like fully like what, what, what it would do to them. Um, so the next step would be, we were thinking about working with schools within the country um, to teach the kids uh, about the, the vaccines, why it's good, why they should take it. And just like in general, just ed educate them about all of the specifics about the vaccine. Um, and we would have the kids in the schools do an activity where they'd make like posters or flyers um, just as like a school project uh, to talk about the vaccine 
and then like either share that with their parents or just post them within the school or on the streets. And we felt like that would be like a really great way to help spread information and education about the vaccine within the country. That's great. Um, and if and if any of our listeners wanted to learn more about Altogether Armenia, um, where would you send them? Um, I'd send them to our website, altogetherarmenia.com. Um, if you just put it into the Google search bar, it should come up pretty quickly. Well, this was awesome. Thank you so much um, for taking the time to do this. Uh, it's a fascinating project, and I and I love the way that um, you have gathered your community at Brooks together to, to work on this. And I also uh, love that uh, there's a, a seed of it was planted at Pike. Well, have a good afternoon. And thanks again for doing this. I really appreciate it. Yeah, thank you, you for too. having us. Yeah, it was great having a chat with you. Too. that was really interesting. It was. One, one of the best parts was seeing how the project has grown from a classroom experience to become so much more. It led to the recruitment of peers to help, the creation of a not-for-profit club at Brooks, connections with a mass general hospital doctor. And then, of course, there are all the ways that it can continue to evolve moving forward, which I think is really interesting. Exactly. I think it connects wonderfully with our student interview in episode one with Yejin and Camille. Remember that? The idea that one small act or step can lead to so many great places. Speaking of great places, Rod, this is probably a great time to talk about another great place, our website. Yes, because at our website, pikeschool.org slash onward, you can find a link to the Altogether Armenia website where you can learn more about the project its aims, and how you can support the work that James and Eric and their peers are doing. While you're there, you can find links to previous episodes of our podcast as well, and bonus materials like extended interviews with some of our guests. And a great list of books focused on non solo and helping others. Lots and lots of goodies and treats on that website. Did you just say treats? I did. I did. All right, then. It's official. It's snack time. I can always get on board with that. Okay, we're back and fully recharged. And we hope you are too, listeners, because our next feature is fantastic. It is. You sat down with alum Margot Lindauer, class of 95, to talk about some really interesting work she is doing as a professor of law at Northeastern University. We had a great time. Margot is just so passionate and easy to talk to. And she's teaching her law school students to engage in hands-on experiences that directly aid folks in the community, right? Yes, exactly. Margot runs a fascinating program that connects law students with victims of domestic violence to create real world solutions and help for those who are suffering from abuse. 
At the same time, the program helps these students learn the power and in some cases, the limitations of the law in providing assistance and safety to those who are affected. The program is truly life-changing for everyone involved. It is. Let's listen. I guess let's start with, can you give me sort of the, the, the summary of what your program is, I guess the Institute, the clinic and how they're connected. Sure. So the domestic violence Institute is an academic Institute within Northeastern university school of law. And within the Institute, there are two programs that I oversee one that I direct and one that I oversee. The first is called legal assistance to victims. That's a first year law school volunteer program where students work in conjunction with community collaborators, particularly um, community health centers and hospitals with, with survivors, with the idea being that folks turn to community health centers and hospital EDs as a place that one would first turn to for help. And so these are direct referrals from case managers or social workers at the health centers, doctors, and psychologists. And they, they, they uh, refer directly to the program. And then the first year law students work with the LAV director and with myself to identify the legal issues and then refer out. The first year law students can't do direct representation because they don't have the necessary qualifications. The clinic, which I run, is an academic course, but it's also a practical course that has a academic seminar component, a training component, and, an, and a litigation in-court representational component. The clinic is basically considered two classes, so two law school classes. So it's a significant amount of time. Students dedicate between 20 and 25 hours a week to the clinic. It starts within a very intensive three-week um, training program, which is about 40 hours of training where students learn. Um, I have students coming from all different experience levels, so the training kind of equalizes them. And I really try to get a diverse group of students, both in terms of lived experience, representation, and um, also practice. So some students mm -hmm. will have had intimate partner violence, domestic violence, or sexual assault experience, but most don't. Mm -hmm. So the training is learning the history of the movement, dynamics of domestic violence, um, working with individuals impacted by trauma, interviewing, counseling, vicarious trauma, and then kind of um, basic legal skills, right? So note-taking, litigation prep, uh, public speaking, um, direct examination, cross-examination, opening arguments, closing arguments, uh, the basic statute, learning how to apply case law. And then kind of after the three weeks, there's it, we move into the kind of really exciting portion of the clinic where students get their own cases yep. um, and work on those cases under my supervision. And then there's a weekly class, a weekly seminar, two-hour seminar, plus ongoing consistent supervision, in-person, Zoom, however. Yep. Um, the representational component is primarily 209A civil restraining orders, which are also, let me rephrase that, 209A civil protection orders, also known as restraining orders in Massachusetts. So they're civil. 
Yep. Um, that's the bulk of the legal work, but the approach of the clinic is incredibly holistic. So we know that domestic violence doesn't happen in a silo. So someone presenting with a legal need or thinking that they want a restraining order very well may have and likely will have child welfare issues, family law issues, housing instability, transportation issues, food insecurity, educational issues with their kids and immigration issues, right? The list goes on and on. And so mm -hmm. we approach the work from a holistic lens, understanding that clients know their situation best and have kept themselves safe up until the point that they're meeting us. Um, and that the legal intervention of the restraining order is one tool. Um, it's not always the right tool. It often yep. can put folks in greater danger. And so students are approaching the work not as, okay, this is my tool. I'm going to use it no matter what, because I want the legal experience in court, but that they're evaluating kind of the pros and cons of going forward with the order with obviously the client's expertise, the client directs the show, and with an understanding that they will touch and work on other aspects of the client's case, even though that might not be the direct domestic violence legal right. issues. And clients often know way more about the system that the legal system than they right. do. Right. They may have been interacting with it for years. Right. And most, I, I would say many have in very different capacities, right? So many of our clients, this is not their first time applying for a restraining order, even against this particular perpetrator, but maybe against, you know, maybe they've had prior abusers. Many of our clients have interaction with the child welfare system, the Department of Children and Families. Many, many clients have had housing issues, either having to have appeared in housing court. Many of our clients are immigrants who've had to suffer through our really, really challenging immigration system. Mm -hmm. Many of our clients have children with significant challenges. So either their children are on IEPs or have had challenges with schooling, consistent schooling. Um, many of our clients have been victims in criminal cases or defendants in criminal cases. And so yep. Their understanding of how these systems intersect with one another often is much more nuanced than my students. But I teach with that lens. So, you know, we talk about the criminal justice system or the criminal injustice system. We talk about um, DCF and how DCF disproportionately impacts marginalized communities. We talk about the surveillance of our clients in different ways than mm -hmm. they may have experienced in their own lives. Mm -hmm. um, we talk about the fractured. Um, mental health system. I think that's one that's really poignant right now, particularly Absolutely. as we're going on year two of the pandemic, right? Yep. And so if you're not approaching the legal issue with that understanding, you might be missing some really significant, significant issues in the case. Well, it's interesting too, you know, at, at Pike, we have long talked about sort of thinking about the whole child. And as we are looking to the future, there really is an, an increasing understanding that we need to be thinking about the whole family, the whole ecosystem yes. that students are in, whether that is their yes. immediate families, their extended families, multifamily households, their communities. And um, it, it's interesting, I hear that sort of mirrored in the approach that you're taking is that there is a whole ecosystem that people are existing in and having that lens allows you to serve them better. 
The other thing that really struck me is when you were describing um, the clinic, it's really sort of an academic and a practical component. I mean, essentially sort of learn and do. Yes. Um, and then learn, do, do it again, reflect, do it again, reflect. <laughs> <laughs> which is, which is so interesting. Right. And so well tied to what we're doing here as well. You know, the, the, again, I think that's one of the evolutions when we think about where education is going um, even as young as the first grade level, right? Learn about something and then do it and stop and come back to yes. it. And I also think, well, so I, that makes me so happy to hear that Pike is doing that. Um, or Pike has that understanding that everyone learns in different ways and book learning or the Socratic method as is taught in law school really doesn't prepare students for what it's like to interview a client, for counseling a client, for filling out paperwork, for interacting with court personnel, from you know appearing in front of different judges, for you know appearing virtually, appearing telephonically, right? And it you know there's so many different goals of education, but one of those goals that I think most of us can agree on is preparing our students for what's next. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And I, I mean, I'm biased, right? I'm a clinical professor, but I, I believe that the best way to prepare students, both academically and professionally, is by doing. And in a situation that feels very personal and really matters to the clients. Yeah. I mean, you know, we are meeting clients on what could be the worst day of their lives mm-hmm. or the worst period of their lives. Mm -hmm. And we need to hold that with respect and care um, and professionalism. And it's, it's big. It's also, you know, like I said earlier in the interview, it's one moment. And so it's holding both, right? This is really important. This is sensitive. You know, we have to be really respectful. We have to identify all of the safety elements of this and kind of give advice that is culturally sensitive, understanding the intersectional status of where our clients are finding themselves with their safety at the forefront, with the law at the forefront. And also these clients have gone through a lot of things in their lives and don't over kind of don't, don't, don't overindulge yourselves to think that you are the most important person in their lives. Yes. Yes. That that's, those are the, both are true. Right. That for that and that framing, if you are a person who's not been on the other side, could be really challenging. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Fascinating. When you um when your students are finished, where do they go? What do they end up doing next? So it depends. So I have what I call my frequent flyers <laughs> who um, kind of stick around and keep working with me. So it depends when they take the clinic. If they take the clinic during their 2L year, their second year of law school, there are opportunities to stay on with the Domestic Violence Institute in different capacities. So a 2L student that really loved the work and thrived may um, be a TA for me, um, may do an independent study with me, may you know support me, or we might co-write something. Um, but, but that's a kind of a very common path where they'll take the course, their 2L year, and then either want to keep working on some cases um, and stick around in an independent study capacity and just take on new cases. So like an advanced clinical offering Mm -hmm. or be a TA, which 
is a wonderful experience. They get some supervision experience, a mentoring experience of students who then take the clinic in subsequent semesters. Um, for students who take, you know, then there are students who take the clinic and they're like, this was a great experience. I never want to do this work again. It's <laughs> I learned a lot. I'd like yeah, to I learned a lot. Work. Thanks, Margot. Um, and, there, you know, there's all in between. I would say the majority of my students keep doing this work in different capacities. So not that they become domestic violence attorneys, but many of the students, the students, for example, who go into firms, um, many of them use this experience to kind of really inform and and populate their pro bono work, right? So if you're in a large firm, you get a certain number of pro bono hours. Many firm attorneys can do domestic violence work. And men, I'm in touch with many of my students who are still doing that. Mm-hmm. Others go into the DA's office, many with a focus on domestic violence or sexual assault work. So I have many students in different DA's offices, which makes me happy because I know that those are the students that really understand how hard it is to come forward to law enforcement and how victims and perpetrators of violence may also be victims or perpetrators themselves. And so I I know that they are approaching those cases with a nuanced lens. Right, Um, and understanding the complexity there. Totally. I have other students who are defense attorneys, um, many students who go into legal aid, um, and then some students who have started their own firms, family law firms, with a focus on child welfare and domestic violence. Now, did you always want to be a lawyer? When When did you find yourself gravitating towards this? So it depends who you ask. Um, sometimes, <laughs> sometimes I think I didn't have a choice <laughs> because I come from a long line of lawyers. My dad's a lawyer. My grandpa was a lawyer. My uncles are lawyers. Um, and so it was always very much kind of at the forefront of my life as a, as a kid. Um, I wanted to be uh, OBGYN for a really long time and got to college, got to Wellesley, and um, quickly realized that I did not like blood. And (laughs) I did not love um, science. (laughs) There you go. So that dream kind of ended very quickly. I knew I wanted to do something where I was of service. I've always been really interested in issues that disproportionately impact women or individuals who identify as women. Um, I had, as I mentioned, I'm fluent in Spanish. And so I was also really interested in working with um, individuals who are immigrants or speak Spanish. And for a long time thought I wanted to be a social worker, Um, but I had a very strong advocate in my dad who went to Northeastern and said, Mm -hmm. before you apply to social work school, just apply to Northeastern law school because Northeastern's a, a school that's committed to social justice. I really feel like you'll like uh, the impact that lawyers can have that's Mm -hmm. more policy and um, long. I mean, he he was very much an advocate of the law. I I don't necessarily agree with a lot of, I I think that social workers are so fundamental to, to our system. And sometimes I have thought like, oh, I should have gone to social work school, but um, I kind of landed in a place that, that has a lot of counseling and a role that allows 
some of, I don't even like saying softer skills, but some of those non-tangible skills to Mm -hmm. be highlighted. Mm -hmm. That's interesting. And um, when you think about what you're doing now, do you feel like there are any through lines from when you were at Pike and how, how you look back on that time? Yeah. So, you know, that's why I asked you at the beginning of the interview is non be solemn, like a Pike thing. It is a Pike thing. non solemn is our motto. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. And so I think it's just always been part of me that service and giving back was going to be part of my life and part of my profession. And I didn't know what that was going to look like. Mm -hmm. Um, But I, I knew it was going to be there. And so yeah, when I do the 360, I, I can say, wow, the, the foundations of my education, which happened at Pike, right? I learned how to write. I learned how to think. I learned how to express myself. I learned how to create a hypothesis and support that hypothesis with information. I learned how to research. Yep. All of that with an orientation around service was just part of who I became. And mm-hmm. I think Pike was a huge part of that. Margot, if you were talking to a Pike student today, what would you tell them was the most important takeaway? You know, when I was a student, I was really caught up in excelling and doing well. And that was really important to me in mastering kind of information. Looking back, I wish I had been less concerned about that and more focused and centered on that I was learning how to think Mm -hmm. and I was learning how to read and I was learning how to engage and be curious because those are the skills that I think allow us to be successful. Um, But I also can't not say that Pike taught me how to work hard. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Well, this has been great. Thank you so much for taking the time. Of course. Um, It's been so much fun. I love connecting with our alums and seeing where they are now. Oh, this is so wonderful. Thank you for thinking of me. Wow, what a fantastic conversation, Elizabeth. Margot is such an enthusiastic ambassador and advocate for this program and the impact it has. She is. It was so rewarding to spend time with her. And as you could tell from the interview, we had a lot of fun. And it was gratifying to hear how she connects a lot of the skills and mindset that she employs in her work directly to her time at Pike. Yes, it was really good to hear that. Pike was clearly a really formative experience for her and what she's been able to accomplish as an adult in the world was built on that. She clearly loves Pike and was excited to share her story with our community. And what a great story it is. Now, listeners, if you've been following along with this season of Onward Podcast, you'll know this is the point in the broadcast where we tell you that you can hear more on our website. That's right. If you point your browser to pikeschool.org slash onward, you'll find additional audio of Elizabeth's conversation with Margot. And you'll also find bonus audio of a lot of our fantastic interviewees this season. Jenny Kravitz, our Director of Equity and Justice. Colleen Shannon, one of Pike's amazing PE teachers. 
my interview with Jess Howie, our second grade teacher extraordinaire. All of those extended interviews and so much more are on our website, pikeschool.org onward. And Rod, one of the other great features on our website is the small but mighty invest now button. That's right. With one click of the button, a listener can make a gift to the Pike Fund that supports learning at Pike. Because you know, Rod, the next Margot or James or Eric is here at Pike right now. And the experiences they're having right now are preparing them for success and impact in secondary school and far, far beyond. And the donors to Pike Fund are the ones who fuel that success every day. Exactly. So while the Invest Now button on the webpage is pretty small, the impact is mighty. Let's give folks a moment to check out the webpage. pikeschool.org slash onward. And make their gift right now. It really is quick and easy. All right, Elizabeth, season two of the podcast is heading into the home stretch. I can hardly believe that. It has been such a great season so far. But it's not over yet. And next episode will be really quite special. It will be. We'll be hearing from two leaders of our Pike community, chair of the board of trustees, Tasneem Dahodwala, who also happens to be an alum, a current Pike parent, and a parent of an alum. So awesome. Yes, and then we'll catch up with Head of School, Ashley Marshall. Both Tasneem and Ashley will be sharing insights into what non-Sibi Solem means to them personally. They'll talk about the power of Pike and the ways Pike is fostering learners who have the skills, confidence, and awareness to lead. You won't want to miss it. No, you won't.